0: Morning, Grace. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We are wrapping up our exposition of Hebrews today. And I want to let you know ahead of time where we're going to be headed next. We will begin our new sermon series in the book of Esther on December 4th. So I would like to encourage you to begin reading the book of Esther so you get your feet wet if you're not familiar with it so that you'll know what's happening when we get there. And I'm excited about what we're going to learn about Jesus from the book of Esther. Now what's interesting is that we've been in the book of Hebrews and it's just been Jesus, 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 Jesus. And we're going to go to the book of Esther and what we will see is that God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. So I'm looking forward to the contrast of just hearing about Jesus all the time and then going to a book where God's name is not even mentioned. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going to finish out chapter 13 of Hebrews today, and what we will discover is that the preacher finally starts to pile up a bunch of commandments at the end of his sermon. And I believe that the book of Hebrews is a sermon, and at the very end of his sermon, he starts piling up all of these commandments. It's been a whole lot of indicatives so far in the book of Hebrews. It's a whole lot of gospel truth, a whole lot of doctrine, a whole lot of theology that has all been centered on Jesus and he has sprinkled some imperatives throughout his sermon, some commandments, some of what he wants the Hebrews to do, but now he lets it all out at the very end. In fact, what I want you to see is what he spells out in chapter 13. He tells us what Hebrews 12, 28 looks like in a church family. That's what we looked at last week. Let me read it again. Hebrews 12, 28 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, what does it look like when Hebrews 12, 28 is lived out in a church family? Well, that's what Hebrews chapter 13 is all about. This is what life in God's kingdom should look like. Jesus is our king, and we saw last week that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, what should life in God's kingdom look like right now, what are some characteristics of God's kingdom that should be present in a church family? Jesus is king over his kingdom. So does that mean we have leaders in his kingdom if Jesus is the king? And then how do we live with one another in God's kingdom? Well, the preacher tells us all about this in Hebrews chapter 13. And all that he tells us in chapter 13 is part of the acceptable worship that we offer to God that he mentioned in Hebrews 12:28. So part of what it means to offer acceptable worship to God is what the preacher calls us to do as a church in these 25 verses of Hebrews chapter 13. And so at the end of his sermon, he piles up all of these commandments to tell us what life and what worship is like in God's kingdom. If you recall in the book of Hebrews, there are 37 or so verses out of the 300 plus verses that contain imperatives or that contain commandments. So the majority of the book of Hebrews is about Jesus. But here at the end, the preacher starts piling up all of these imperatives and all of these commandments, these things that he wants us to do. And if you read between the lines of Hebrews 13. What the preacher does here is actually genius. He, he actually drops grace throughout the last 25 verses to remind the Hebrews that it's all about God's grace. If they are to do what he calls them to do at the end of this sermon, well, they will need God's grace to do it. If they are to live life in God's kingdom, they're going to need God's grace to do that. If they are to remember and to obey and to submit to their leaders, they will need God's grace to do it. If they are to offer acceptable worship, they will need God's grace to do it. If they are to love one another and show hospitality, they will need God's grace to do so. And so the preacher just kind of plants the idea of grace throughout these last 25 verses. So our big idea today is all about God's grace. And I think the Hebrews, uh, the preacher of Hebrews is saying this, there's grace for that. Whatever God has called you to do in his kingdom, there's grace available to do it. All that the preacher is encouraging this congregation to do at the end of his sermon, he's telling them, there's grace available to do it. Now, let me show you where I'm getting that. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The preacher wants love to continue to spread throughout this church body. He wants them to realize that they are family That they would continue this brotherly love that is already present in this church body. And this is what life in God's kingdom should look like. What it's supposed to look like. That we love one another. Love should be the DNA that's a part of everything that we do in God's kingdom. And the preacher wants that love to propel the Hebrews to show hospitality to strangers. Because as he says here... Some people have done this. They have showed hospitality to strangers and they have actually entertained angels. Now, what in the world does this verse mean? What does it mean that if you show hospitality to strangers that you might end up entertaining angels? Is he saying that you might end up having an angel over for dinner for some Santa Maria style tri-tip? Is that what he's saying here? Let me tell you what I think. I do not think He's saying that if you show hospitality to strangers, then you might actually be helping an angel. I don't think that's his point here. Now, I know some people think that that's what this verse means. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think that he's saying that if you help a little old lady across the street, then you might have actually helped an angel because the angel was disguised as a little old lady. I don't think angels go around dressing up as little old ladies and acting like it's Halloween. Angels don't need our help. We need their help. What the preacher is actually doing here in verse 2 is referring to Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham and Sarah invited those strangers into their home and cooked a meal for them. And those strangers ended up being angelic beings. So by alluding to Genesis 18, by alluding to Abraham and Sarah, as George Guthrie says, the author picked up the Abraham story not primarily to focus on angelic beings, but to highlight a great example of hospitality. So his main point is not a supernatural experience with an extraterrestrial being might be missed if you don't listen to me. Rather, he is exhorting his readers, be characterized by exemplary hospitality. Be like Abraham. In other words, cultivate an open home and life In regard to other people. So the preacher has picked up the Abraham story. Not primarily to focus on angelic beings. But to highlight a great example of hospitality. And because hospitality is an essential expression of Christian love. The preacher wants the Hebrews to continue to show this kind of love to one another. His point is not that you might actually cook dinner for the angels Michael and Gabriel. His point is not that God's going to give you grace to have supernatural experiences with extraterrestrial beings. That's not his point. His point is that God gives grace to us so that brotherly love will continue as we show hospitality to others. That's his point. And the strangers that he's referring here most likely refers to Christians who would be traveling through an area... And needed a place to stay. I don't think he's saying that we should invite total strangers into our house. I mean, that wouldn't be wise, would it? Should we be building relationships with people such that we might invite them into our homes for a meal? Absolutely, of course. But it would not be wise to just open the door to some stranger and let them in. The preacher is calling the Hebrews to let brotherly love continue by showing hospitality to others. And he wants them to let that brotherly love continue, as he says in verse 3, by causing that hospitality then to spread even outside their homes. He wants them to visit those believers who have been put in prison because of their belief in Jesus. If you remember, some of the Hebrews had been suffering persecution for being Christians. We saw this in chapter 10. The people mentioned here are church members who have been locked up for their faith. So he's saying, this is family. You're in the body. This is what we do. These are family members who have been locked up for the gospel. And so we're called to take care of one another in God's family. When someone is mistreated, we're to come alongside them and help them. We're called to enter into the suffering of other people our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, we must realize that being a Christian means that you are a part of God's family, a part of His kingdom. And life in the kingdom of God is one where love causes us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto blessing and serving other people. John Piper says if you live gladly to make others glad in God your life will be hard and your risks will be high and your joy will be full that's what the preacher wants for the Hebrews for them to live gladly to make other people glad in God and when that is your passion in life your life will be hard and your risks will be high it's going to cost you time and money you know what? Your joy will be full. And what empowers us to do that? What empowers us to risk our lives, to do hard things for God's glory and for the joy of others? It's grace. God's grace empowers us to do what he calls us to do. There's grace for that. Grace to make others glad in God. Grace to do hard things. Grace to take risks. And it is that very same grace that will enable us to adequately handle marriage and money. There's grace to handle marriage and to handle money. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? If we are to uphold the God-ordained definition and purpose of marriage in our day, in this country, in this time, we are going to need God's grace to do that. We need God's grace because the tide of cultural pressure is pulling many churches and many Christians away from God's word and what God says about marriage in His word. Marriage was God's idea. He gets to define it. Here's part of our affirmation of faith that reads this way Section J under the title Marriage and Sexuality. We believe that the term marriage has only one meaning. And that is marriage sanctioned by God, which joins one man and one woman in a single, exclusive, covenantal union as delineated in Scripture. And that is in our affirmation of faith precisely because we want to obey Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. We want marriage to be held in honor by all. We want the marriage bed to be kept undefiled. Even though we are a part of God's kingdom right now, and even though we're awaiting the city that is to come, We still live here in this broken world now on earth where God's kingdom is currently being extended. Therefore, because we still live here in this broken world, we are called to uphold those creation ordinances like marriage. We uphold marriage, a sacred union between one man and one woman. And we do that because God put that in place at creation. The seventh commandment is still binding on us. And so we trust that God will judge those who don't, as the preacher says here. So we need grace to uphold marriage in our culture and in our society. But we also need grace when it comes to money. As Pastor James challenged us two weeks ago, we must strive and fight to keep our lives free from the love of money. We must learn to be content with what we have. That's hard, right? Learning to be content is hard. Love of money is real. You know how this is a litmus test to know if you really love money. If somebody said to you, "I will give you a hundred dollars for every Bible verse you memorize," how many of you would spend this week memorizing a lot of God's word? I probably would. I have six kids. We need groceries. (laughs) It's a litmus test of do I love money? You might be surprised. That you do. So just wrestle with that yourself in your own heart this week. If someone gave you $100 for every Bible verse that you memorized, would you memorize a lot this week? It might be a litmus test that you love money. And so what the preacher is doing here when he says learning to be content is showing us that there are two sides to serving the Lord in God's kingdom on earth right now. There's a positive and a negative aspect to our service in this fallen, broken world. There are things we are to avoid, and there are things we are to replace it with. For instance, the preacher says here, keep your life free from the love of money. That's the negative side. That's what we are to avoid. But positively, you replace it with being content. So if you struggle with the love of money, you replace it with contentment. You replace the love of money with contentment. That's how you kill greed. And what will enable us to not love money and to be content? God's grace is the only answer. And how does God's grace come to us? through the very promises that the preacher brings up in verses 5 and 6. Here's the first grace-empowering promise that he mentions. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 and verse 8. And you probably know it's a reference to Joshua 1, 5, but you may not know it's also a reference to 1 Chronicles twenty-eight twenty. Who knew such good truth could be hidden in 1 Chronicles 28? This is is the covenant commitment of our God. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that's why we can say with confidence, along with the other promise that's mentioned here from Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. We can say that the Lord is our helper because God keeps his covenant promises. We can say that because the Lord is our helper. We can stand up for the definition of marriage in our society and say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's just another way of saying that God's grace is with us. It's all grace. So do yourself a favor. You want to memorize a verse? Memorize Hebrews chapter 13, verses five and six. You won't regret it. I will never leave you nor forsake you that's grace the lord is my helper that's grace are you struggling to honor marriage maybe you're being pulled and and by the tide of culture to say maybe we need to rethink marriage here maybe it's not one man and one woman are you struggling to honor marriage there's grace for that are you struggling in your marriage There's grace for that. Do you find it hard to love and forgive your spouse? Guess what? There's grace for that. Whatever God has called you to do in your marriage, the good news of the gospel is that there's grace for that. Are you struggling with greed? There's grace for that. Are you struggling to be content with what you have? There's grace for that. You get on social media. Maybe you see people going on these vacations. You're like, I want to go. You see these people eating at these nice restaurants, and they have all these nice things, and you're like, all I have is a bowl of ramen noodles. There's grace to be content with a bowl of ramen noodles. Are you struggling with fear? The fear of what's happening in our world? There's grace for that. Struggling with loneliness? Loneliness? There's grace for that. All of the promises in God's word are a means of grace for you to be empowered to do what God has called you to do in his kingdom. Scotty Smith says the best way to starve the idols of our hearts is to feast on the gospel of God's grace. You will find the grace to do whatever God calls you to do in his kingdom right here in this book now before we look at verses 7 through 17 let me explain what the preacher is doing here in verse 7 he brings up their leaders their shepherds their pastors their elders the people who are leading this congregation and then he will bring them up again in verse 17 and what he does in between verse 7 and verse 17 is kind of sandwich this idea of what he's talking about here He explains how their pastors and their shepherds have taught them about Jesus. How Jesus is the sacrifice for their sins. And how they are not to return to the old covenant sacrificial system to find forgiveness of sins. And so in between verse 7 and 17, the preacher contrasts Jesus' sacrificial death with what the Hebrews were hearing from other people how they were being taught and tempted by others to return to the Old Covenant, to return to the law, to return to the Old Covenant sacrificial system. And so he sandwiches that between the idea of bringing up the leaders. Look at it. Let me show you. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever forever. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so verse 7 connects with verse 17 and sandwiched between these verses about their leaders is the teaching about Jesus' suffering as the sacrifice for our sins. So the preacher wants to point out what their leaders had taught the Hebrews about Jesus and how they need to submit to the teaching of their leaders. The Hebrews had been taught by their pastors that Jesus is better. They had been taught about his sacrificial death. But they are being tempted to return to the law and to return to the old covenant sacrificial system. And so the preacher is reminding the Hebrews about God's grace that came to them through the teaching of their pastors. So he says in verse 7 to consider and imitate their leaders. He wants them to think about how they live and imitate their faith, how their leaders trust in God's promises. These leaders, he says, spoke the word of God and taught the Hebrews what to believe about Jesus. And then he gives them a reason why they should imitate their leaders. And one reason why they should imitate their leaders is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever what these leaders taught the Hebrews about Jesus is the same doctrine, the same truth that God's people have enjoyed throughout history. He's telling them that Jesus doesn't change. He's telling them that God's truth, God's promises in his word never changes. He's telling them that kingdom principles and kingdom truths do not change. And what their pastors and their leaders taught them from God's word about Jesus, he's telling them it's true. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in verses 9 through 16, the preacher contrasts the gospel that these leaders had taught the Hebrews with the old covenant that they had come out of in Judaism. He tells the Hebrews in verse 9 how grace comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus and not through the old covenant sacrificial system. He's telling them that grace comes to us through Jesus, not through the various food laws of the Old Covenant. He's saying this to them. Go to Jesus. He's the real sacrifice. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the temple. Grace is found in a person. Jesus, he is the one who made worship and offering sacrifices possible. His blood sanctifies. It's because of him that we can offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And so the preacher wants their hearts to be strengthened by grace and not by law. They were being tempted to return to the dietary restrictions under the Old Covenant, but the preacher is telling them that avoiding pork products, as the law commands, he's saying, that will not strengthen your heart. Only God's grace can strengthen a human heart. If the Hebrews think that avoiding bacon and sausage Because the Old Covenant law says so. If the Hebrews think that avoiding bacon and sausage will strengthen their heart, then they are sadly wrong. Because in the New Covenant, bacon strengthens the heart. Amen? In the New Covenant, sausage gravy strengthens the heart. Or should I say bacon and sausage clogs the heart? Listen, I love the New Covenant. Thursday night, we had sausage gravy biscuits and sausage gravy for dinner and I had bacon for breakfast yesterday and I had sausage again this morning I love the new covenant the point here is that they were trying to return to the law to be strengthened when only grace can do that all the sacrifices of the old covenant sacrificial system and all the laws were pointing to Jesus. It's through the shed blood of Jesus that sinners are cleansed and sanctified. And so we go to Jesus for grace and not to the law. And it is through Jesus that we offer up sacrifices of praise to God, he says. It is because of Jesus that we offer up the fruit of our lips that is That we sing of his goodness to us in the gospel. Listen, in God's kingdom, in God's family, in the church, we sing. We are a singing people. And it is because of this gospel of God's grace that we then move out to love and serve others as well. To do good and to share what we have with others. We sing praises to God up and then we move out to love and serve others. So the preacher reminds the Hebrews in verse 16 that sharing with others and doing good to others are pleasing to God. Offering praise and worship with our lips is pleasing to God. And so it's through our life of doing good and sharing with others, and it's through our lips that we please our Heavenly Father. It is by grace that we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is exactly what these leaders and pastors had taught the Hebrews. They were taught the truth about Jesus, the truth about God's kingdom. And that's why the preacher then calls on them to submit to their leaders. Look again at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen to the beginning of that verse again. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. What if we put that bumper sticker on the back of all of our cars? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Some of you have no idea what I'm trying to apply that to, do you? Obey your leaders and submit to them. He wants the Hebrews here to obey and submit to their leaders, their pastors, their shepherds, their elders. Because their leaders are shepherds who are caring for them. They're watching over the souls of this congregation. And they will give account one day. And so he challenges the Hebrews to obey and submit to their leaders so that their leaders can shepherd them and care for them with joy and not groaning. And he gives the reason why. If they give their leaders grief so that leading is not a joy and instead something that causes them to groan, then he's saying it won't benefit you, Hebrews. He's saying if you're a pain in the neck and you don't obey and follow your elders and pastors and submit to them and submit to what they have taught you about Jesus, he says, then it's not going to benefit you. Please understand this grace. Grace. Leaders are not infallible. Your elders and pastors here at Grace are not infallible. We need the prayers of this church. Leaders need the church to pray that God would give them the grace that they need to serve the church. Pastors and elders have targets on their backs, and spiritual warfare is real. Listen, if you're a pastor or an elder, a deacon... Ministry leader, you know spiritual warfare is real. You have a target on your back. And so leaders should live honorably and they need their people to pray for them so that they might live honorably. Elders and pastors desperately need God's grace. So let me tell you two things about your leaders here. Let me tell you two things about your elders and your pastors here at Grace. Number one, we are sinners. We are the kind of people Jesus died for. So we will make mistakes. We are not perfect. We do not always make perfect decisions. Secondly, we love you. Your elders and pastors love you. We do. I know these men and they labor and shepherd and pray and serve because they love you. They serve because they love you. Please know that. We were just at an elder meeting last Tuesday night. Several of them sharing how God has opened doors for them in places of ministry to reach out to unbelievers. These are godly men who love you. It's not easy being an elder or a pastor. You may not know this about the church. It might be a surprise to some of you, but people complain. People whine. People spread rumors That's not God's plan for his family. God wants brotherly love to continue. He wants his children to submit to the leaders that King Jesus has placed over his kingdom. He wants his leaders serving with joy and not with groaning. As I said, spiritual warfare is real. And the elders and the pastoral staff here at Grace are sinners who need God's grace just as much as the next person. And if you need to submit to your leaders and you struggle with that because of some decision your leaders have made, there's grace for that. There's grace for you to submit. And if you're a leader here and you struggle to love and lead and care, there's grace for that. There's grace for all of us because all of us are sinners who desperately need God's grace so that brotherly love will continue in this church family. Whatever it is that you're struggling with in this church body today, It could be that there's somebody here that you just can't stand. And maybe it's one of the elders. Maybe it's me. The preacher of Hebrews wants you to know there's grace for that. There's grace available to live life in God's broken, messy family. Yes, God's family is messy. God's family has issues, as every family does. Listen, I told someone this week, every family is messy. Every family has that one person who's seriously messed up. And maybe more. Everyone has that one crazy uncle. They're like, that guy here, you got to watch him. God's family has baggage. God's family sure can cause a lot of drama, but he still loves us, and he gives us grace to let brotherly love continue here in this messy family. So even though Jesus is king, and even though we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, nevertheless, he gives leaders, pastors and shepherds and elders to the church. He gives shepherds to the church to care for them. Yes, Jesus is the king of his kingdom, but he graciously gives leaders to his church. It's a grace gift to have godly leaders. It's evidence of God's Kindness. So let me brag on your pastors and your elders here at Grace. God has given you some great men who love Jesus, and they love you, and that is evidence of his kindness. Evidence of his love, evidence of his grace to Grace Baptist Church. Be grateful today for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and be grateful for the godly men who serve here as your pastors and elders. And be grateful for the godly wives who stand alongside those godly elders. Okay, we're running out of time so we need to bring this sermon to a close because the preacher of Hebrews is bringing his sermon to a close. And what we'll see him do is pray and ask for more of God's grace for himself and his friends, and the Hebrews. So look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. First, the preacher asks for prayer for himself. He wants to be a godly pastor who acts honorably, so he asks the Hebrews to pray for him. Let me ask you to pray for me. He is acknowledging that he needs God's grace and I'm acknowledging that I need God's grace and he longs to see the Hebrews soon and he hopes that God will grant him his wish so that now that Timothy's been released, he and Timothy can go visit these people that he loves. And then the preacher prays for the Hebrews and his benediction here, his prayer for the Hebrews is both a means of God's grace to this congregation and it's a wish for God's grace for this congregation. He asks that God may do these things for them. He asks that God who through, the, through his own power raised Jesus from the dead. He's asked that God would equip the Hebrews with everything good so that they can do his will and be pleasing to him. The preacher prays that God would equip them to live life in God's kingdom. And how does God equip his people? It's grace. It's God's power, his transforming power to do his will and to live a life pleasing to him. And so the preacher's prayer here is actually a means of grace, And he actually prays for grace. He prays that God would grace them through his prayer to live life in God's kingdom in a way that pleases God. And then he gives a few personal notes in the last few verses, which is just another reminder that life in God's kingdom is lived as a family where we share each other's burdens. He tells them Timothy has been released from prison. The churches in Italy send their greetings. These are not throwaway verses, grace. These are verses that show us the care and the fellowship and the brotherly love that should characterize and that should exist within God's family. And I love what the preacher says in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. According to the preacher, 13 chapters is a brief exhortation. I think what he means here is he's saying, I could talk about Jesus all day. But he's going to wrap up his sermon now after 13 chapters. And how does he wrap it up? With a prayer of grace in verse 25. He says, grace be with you all. I love what John Piper says about grace coming at the beginning and the end of the New Testament epistles. And though Piper is talking about how the Apostle Paul begins and ends his letters with the words grace to you, I think it applies here in Hebrews as well. He says this, at the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to the Christians. So he says, grace to you. That is, grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read the words, grace to you. But as the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes that the reading is almost finished and the question rises, What becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? He answers with a blessing at the end of every letter. Grace be with you. With you as you put the letter away and leave the church. With you as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. What then do we learn from Paul's unbroken pattern of beginning and ending his letters in this way? Grace be to you. Grace be with you. We learn that grace is an unmistakable priority in the Christian life. We learn that it is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but that it can come through people. We learn that grace is ready to flow to us every time we take up the inspired scriptures to read them. And we learn that grace will abide with us when we lay the Bible down and go about our daily living. In other words... We learn that grace is not merely a past reality, but a future one. Every time I reach for the Bible, God's grace is a reality that will flow to me. Every time I put the Bible down and go about my business, God's grace will go with me. Whatever God has called you to today, there's grace for that. Do you have to go home and deal with a sick child today? There's grace for that. Do you live with an unaffectionate spouse, there's grace for that. When you go to work tomorrow and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust, guess what? There's grace for that. And when you muster up courage to speak up for Christ over lunch, there's grace for that. One word, grace. And how do you get it? One word, help. All you have to do is say help. Can you say help? And our Heavenly Father is so good to us, He gives us His grace even when we don't even ask for it. But one word, grace. And how do you get it? Just saying help. Holding your hands up and just saying, help, and His grace comes. Help, and His grace comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace that You've shown to us in Your Son through His life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for the grace that comes to us through your word. Every time we pick it up, grace is coming to us. Every time we lay it down and go about our daily lives, your grace is with us. And we thank you for that. That Your grace rains down upon us, Father. And so as a church body, we just collectively hold our hands out today and say, help. Help us, Father. Some of us are dealing with sick children, and we need your grace. Some of us are dealing with an unaffectionate spouse, and we need your grace. Some of us find it hard to love and forgive our spouse. And we need your grace. Some of us need courage, Father, when we go to work tomorrow. As we battle lust and dishonesty and anger and as embarrassment as we speak up for the gospel over lunch. We need your grace and we just say, help. And we know that it comes. Would you enable us by your grace to live gladly to make others glad in God? knowing that our risks will be high, the work will be hard, that you will get great glory and our joy will be increased all because of your grace. In Jesus' name.